Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, 23rd chapter, verses 35 through 43. Now listen to the word of God. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How would you respond to the question, where is paradise? Just take a second and think about that. Where is paradise for you? For some, it might be in the mountains. For others, it might be on a beach, sitting there with a little drink, with a little umbrella in it. Other people, it's by yourself in front of a fire, reading your favorite book. Some other people would be inside of a deer blind or fishing. (laughs) Or what about the happiest place on earth? And where, where is that place, the happiest place on earth? Disney World. Anyone else? Is that your idea of paradise? A buddy of mine was there uh, 10 days ago. He and his family, they had planned their trip. They have saved their money. They, at the end of their trip, they spent their wad of cash and they're ready to come home. But then Texas became this frozen tundra. And though they were ready to come home, they were stuck in Disney World for another five days. Five days stuck in Disney World. I I called my friend Kyle two Wednesdays ago and I said, so how's paradise? And he said to me, he said, Mark, I spent $1,700 today. (laughs) And I responded to him, I was like, dude, you got to get out of there. Go find yourself a La Quinta fast. Maybe next to TGIF and just live it up there if you want to. But get out of Disney World. It's Interesting uh, how places of paradise have a certain lifespan to them. Our ideas are like more like mirages of what paradise could be, and they seem to fade, fade away quickly. Disney might be a paradise for four days, but when you tack on five more, it might feel more like another place. Especially when you come home and find that a bunch of pipes in your attic had frozen over and bursted, then it is even more of a less idea of paradise. I'd like to thank my friend Kyle and Morgan for a very expensive sermon illustration. Paradise can seem like a fleeting idea, something that promises much and it delivers very little, something that we all long for, yet somehow we have a hard time finding it. We're in the season that's called Lent, 
It's the season that prepares us for the promise of Easter. And as we go through the season of Lent, we're considering seven statements that Jesus said upon the cross. And today we've come to the second statement that Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Let us slow down and consider this moment that we have. In some ways it's so known that it can maybe mean very little to us, but I want us to, in our mind's eye, picture this tragic scene. Jesus there upon the cross. This is not a private execution. This was a public lynching. And somehow, with all public lynchings, a crowd seems to gather. Yes, there are a couple people who loved Jesus and they were there to mourn, be with him in his final moments. But mostly... It was a crowd of people who were there to gawk at violence and suffering. And it's from that crowd we have this passage. Not only did Jesus have to endure the physical pain of the crucifixion, but also Jesus had to endure the painful words from this gathering. First, there are the words from the leaders, the sneering words that they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then the soldiers then took their turn. They made a toast at Jesus' suffering and offered Jesus upon this cross wine vinegar. And the bitterness of that vinegar matched their bitter words as they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then even Pilate, He had a sign that was fixed above Jesus' head that said, King of the Jews in mockery. And if that wasn't enough, the source of the criticism and mockery then shifted from the crowd below to a criminal at Jesus' side. Verse 39, we heard, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Notice something consistent about each of these statements. Every painful word of jeering, of mockery, of abuse, they were all attacking Jesus' identity. It's almost like these words are saying, what a joke. This really is the king, the long-awaited Messiah? Really, this is our Savior? This was the same strategy that Jesus faced when he was in the wilderness, in the desert, and the enemy came to him, the tempter came to him and said very similar things. If you really are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you really are God's beloved son, throw yourself from the top of the temple and see what will happen. You see the same words here. If you are the savior, save yourself. Come on down. Prove yourself. Yet Jesus would be a different kind of savior. He'd be a different kind of king. And Jesus remained there, fixed upon that cross, not falling prey to this feeling of proving himself. He knew who he was, and Jesus knew what he was there for. And in that flurry of mockery, Someone, one person, finally came to Jesus' defense. This is the only person for which we find in the 
the Bible records uh, that actually spoke on Jesus' behalf in that moment. And who was it? It was a man upon the cross on the other side. We find in verse 40, he said to the other criminal, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are here punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve but this man has done nothing wrong. This criminal knew what the crowd did not, that Jesus was not only innocent, but Jesus was in fact all of those titles that were used to mock him. He was savior. He was the chosen one. He was a king. And this was demonstrated in what this man said next. He turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I find this absolutely astonishing that though Jesus is there dying, he's struggling to breathe within moments of his own death for whatever reason, this man upon his side still believed that Jesus' kingdom was in front of him. He still believed that he would be a savior, that he would be king. So he asked, when you come into your kingdom, this man saw something that other people didn't. How did this man have eyes to see that which everyone else was blind to? It seems as if this is what we found in Jesus' kingdom again and again and again. Christ's hiddenness was often revealed to the least likely. Those who would be the least likely, they actually saw what everyone else was blind to. Even Jesus' own disciples who had walked with him for years heard the promise of what was taking place. They thought it was over. They deserted him. None of them were claiming the future of Jesus' kingdom, but this despised criminal did. We saw it from the very beginning of Jesus' life when God chose to show himself to the shepherds, those who, who were seen as not trustworthy, those who were outcasts from society. Those were the people, the first witnesses to Jesus' life outside of his parents. And what we find here at the very end, Jesus' kingdom was consistent that Jesus' kingdom was for the scoundrels, the rejects, those who know that they had sin. They are the ones who had eyes to see, not the crowds gawking with contempt, and not this other criminal looking for a cheap exit, but this dangerous thief who turned to Jesus in his last moments in desperation, he saw Jesus clearly. And in desperation, he said the words, remember me, remember me, Jesus. I know this is not over. I believe this story isn't done. You have a kingdom in front of you. So I'm asking, please, will you remember me? I can't explain it, but uh, when I read that passage this past week, it so deeply moved me because Jesus' focus was not on the jeering crowd. It wasn't on 
their words of contempt. It wasn't even on protecting his image, defending himself, which I know that's, that would be my temptation is to protect myself, to protect my image. Jesus was quite comfortable being misunderstood in this moment. And where was Jesus' focus? It was on the only person that was there in desperation asking for a Savior. It wasn't on his reputation. It wasn't on his prominence. It was on this man, this dangerous man, who with a plea of desperation said, will you please remember me? In 2017, Pixar released a movie called Coco. Anyone saw it? Yeah? The theme of the movie uh, was shared in the title track, which was, remember me? Anyone want to sing it? No? Okay. There's a reason why, as adults, when we watch these movies, they uh, move us. It's because whoever writes these movies, it's like bait and switch. We're going to sit with our kids, we're going to watch them, and then all of a sudden get sucker punched with an emotional pull. Because most of these movies, they draw upon a common, very human longing that all of us have. For instance, the movie Up, that was a movie, the underlying theme was around homelessness, losing a sense of home, that family, the homesickness that we often are afflicted with. The movie uh, Inside Out was all around becoming a emotionally aware, and also the importance of learning how to be sad. For without us embracing our sadness, we can't understand what it means to be, have, be people of joy. And here in this movie, Coco, we find uh, a similar request that, uh, that we find here upon the cross. It was this man's request, will you remember me? Will I matter enough for for me to have a place in your heart and in your mind. And in that, mo- in that movie, if someone was forgotten in the afterlife, they no longer existed. And here, this dying man, he has a similar point of view, that my future, my deliverance is connected to Jesus, your desire to remember me. And it's finally at that request, that desperate plea, that Jesus breaks his silence. He finally responds. As an Episcopal priest, Fleming Rutledge, she pointed out, she said that in this moment, all has been stripped from Jesus. You know, physically, he's been stripped of his clothes, but also his dignity. He's been stripped of his power, his, his position. He's there upon the cross. And the only thing that's left with him, the only thing that he still has, is he has the power of his word. That Jesus still has the power of his word. And she was right when she said that Jesus' authority and power was still there in Jesus' word and his voice would be enough to bring about deliverance for this man. As Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. This encounter might challenge our understanding of how salvation works. This was a violent man. He was dangerous. The same word used to describe him in this passage is the same one that Jesus used in the story of the the Good Samaritan as this man was walking down this road. He He was attacked by a bunch of bandits, a bunch of thieves, the same word, and they beat him nearly to death. 
and left him to die. That is this kind of man who is there being executed. He is not just a minor thief. He was dangerous. He was not a small-time criminal. And Jesus is offering this man salvation based on a couple sentences. But Jesus, does he understand the Trinity? Like, does, has he heard the Romans wrote, the offer of salvation? Does he believe in the infallible, perfect Bible? How is his church attendance? Has he really repented? What about his serving, his tithing? Has he even asked Jesus, has he asked you into his heart? Has he said the sinner's prayer? Has he raised his hand after a sermon, a moving sermon? No. Jesus simply hears a desperate cry for a man to be saved and with a glimmer of faith that Jesus could actually do it. Christ is willing, maybe even eager, to offer this man salvation. It seems like we as Christians sometimes are quite comfortable establishing rules for how God acts, how salvation should work. And in our formulas and our steps by which people are saved, sometimes we create barriers. This encounter on the cross defies many of our expectations and it invites us to broaden what kind of hope we could have, what Jesus might choose to do. Now, this is a little gruesome, but I think it's important to point out. Each time that Jesus chooses to breathe, especially to talk, he has to pull himself up. And the only way he can do that so that his his lungs can fill with air is he pulls himself against the nails that have him attached there to the cross. And so each word that he would have spoken would have been deliberate. It would have been chosen with precision. So let us notice Jesus' words carefully in this promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not just sometime. This is not just an ambiguous promise that sometimes we feel like God gives us of like, wait, have faith, keep hope, hang in there maybe one day. In this moment, Jesus says, today, today. Think of the comfort that this man must have found in that word today, that this day will not end in suffering. It won't end with death. That today is not going to end with you becoming a corpse. Today, paradise. Today. When I have mourned the passing of loved ones, I have found great comfort in that word today. When we were there a couple weeks ago, when Wayne passed from this side of life to the, to the next, I was comforted with the idea of today. That there's never been a moment where Wayne is more alive than he is now, today. When we walked our friend Bridget a couple years ago through her bout with cancer, and I sat with her body after she had passed, I found great comfort in that word today that today the promises of her Savior are experienced in their fullness. The moment she passed through that threshold that we call death, her suffering had come to an end. She was no longer stuck in this space of waiting. Today, she was in paradise. Paradise. You know, there's a thousand and one concepts of what paradise might be, and ours might be all different. Maybe for many of us, our beloved dog waits for us in paradise. 
Maybe for some of us, being reunited with family is our idea of paradise. For others, having eternity with your your in-laws might not be paradise. We can spend a lot of time wondering what paradise might be. And even in this passage, we could focus on that. This is the only time Jesus uses this word paradise in all the Gospels, by the way. So what is paradise? Well, I believe the key to understanding what paradise is is with the two words that precede that word, paradise. It's the two words of un- unlocking what it might mean for us. And what, was the, what were those two words? With me. With me. You want to know what paradise is? Paradise is with Jesus. This life with Christ. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is where Jesus is. Psalm 16 said it so beautifully. In your presence is the fullness of joy. With me, there's fullness of joy. You see, we were designed and we were created to be with Christ. From the very, very beginning, God created humanity to be with God, to exist with God. And when that was broken, God began this this wild journey of restoring that which was lost, to bring us back to God, to make us whole again with God. And God seemed to be obsessed with restoring God's presence with God's people from a cloud and fire in the deserts through a temple. People could could feel God's nearness, behold God's presence again and again. We find this divine obsession from God to restore life with God again. And ultimately, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came with that sole purpose in mind and in heart, Jesus came to be with us again. Jesus wasn't removed from society like some guru on a mountaintop or like some king in a guarded palace. Jesus was God in flesh with people. He was found at weddings, at tables, meeting people on roadsides in their pain, in their sorrows. Jesus was with people again in true friendship and love and mutuality. God was with us again. And when Jesus came, he didn't do what religion often does and sometimes what the church often does. Jesus did not create obstacles or barriers to be with him. He did the opposite. Jesus's ministry was to break down every barrier between a life with us and God again especially for those who thought they were too far gone. For those who knew that they needed a savior, Jesus went straight for them to show them that God was with them. Jesus did this to the very end. So it shouldn't be surprising that one of the final things that Jesus says was a promise to a man being killed in disgrace, condemned to die, For Jesus to, in these words, to similarly say, death is just one more barrier I am going to conquer and you will be with me forever in paradise. 
That word paradise is a particular reference. It's a Persian word that was common in that day. It was used to describe a king's garden. Within a palace that was guarded, there would be a small private garden that the king would go to, a place of solitude, of refuge, of peace. It's like a little picture of what heaven might be. Jesus uses this word, but with Jesus it would not be as it was treated in the other ways. And that day, when Jesus said it would not be a place for the privileged or the few or the powerful, it was for a man dying upon a cross. And Jesus said, you are going to be with me in that kind of paradise. How interesting is it that the story of humanity's experience with God begins with a garden, the Garden of Eden, where humanity experienced life with God without a tinge of sadness or shame or regret or brokenness. And the place where it ends is another garden. The Bible ends with a picture in Revelation 22, the literal last chapter of Scripture. It ends with a picture of a garden that has a river of life with trees of healing that aren't without season. They don't fall after a big freeze, right? And in this garden, we have this promise. Jesus' words we find is this. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Notice it. What is, what is the end of our story? It's this divine obsession we have of God to be with us. Now God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. God will be with them and be their God. And you notice how paradise is depicted. It is a life with God. And a byproduct of a life with God, a life with Christ, is this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne, Jesus said these words, Behold, I'm making everything new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This criminal on the cross was right. Jesus still had a kingdom. He had a throne, and in his kingdom, there is paradise with him. So friends, in our scripture reading today, we had this huge juxtaposition. In this dark moment upon the cross, Jesus brings about a promise of paradise. Because in part, for us in the dark places of our life, we need to know that. That Jesus is there. Jesus is with us. This is the work of the cross. Not only to show us Christ's passion to be with us in our suffering, but also even in death, that Jesus has proved that he will be with us and we will be with him, that our story ends with Jesus. So today, today I ask that you would join the way of that man, that criminal, Will you turn to him? Will you reach out to him? Pray to him in the dark places of your life. God longs for you to experience a full life with him now, not just one day, but today, today. And as our hearts courageously welcome that kind of kingdom, let us follow Jesus in the dark places of this world to embody this promise even there, this profound hope 
Truly, friends, I tell you, today we could be with Christ in paradise. May we experience it now.